Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, for giving us another day to worship you in the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for truth, Father, for that is what sets us free. Your Son said, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. May we learn to cling to these words, Father, for encouragement, especially as difficult times continue to befall more and more believers in this world. As the God of this world turns up the heat, may we rest assured that the victory has been secured in Christ. We pray that our hearts remain open and true and that those not able to be with us this morning receive this message some other way. We ask that you bless this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls and may it challenge each of us as we hear your calling upon our lives. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, the series we're on, of course, is the gospel, salvation, and sanctification. This is part 31. I'm just going to warn you that uh, there's a lot of synthesizing this morning. We've had a lot of moving parts because of the special last Sunday and then uh, the Christmas Eve service on Thursday, but yet he wove in... Um, our primary course of study along the way. Uh, and as he likes to do, he takes and took advantage of those practical opportunities like Christmas to amplify the things that have been coming from our primary course of study. And so when you have multiple threads going like this, uh, at the end of it, he likes to synthesize. He likes to just collect our thoughts, but... Uh, that's going to take a little concentration on your behalf this morning, so I'm just letting you know that this morning will be and will require some concentration. Last week's theme, if you want to say it that way, could aptly be dubbed uh, where we began with the 2015 Christmas special on Sunday and got back to our primary course of study on Tuesday, and then the Christmas Eve special on Thursday could be dubbed this way. The gift of giving. And of course that's appropriate relative to the season. Our Lord's words in Acts 20.35, It is more blessed to give than to receive. For mature believers, the transcendent gifts are given by God after the initial transaction. However, for the immature and the unbelievers, the first transaction closes all aspects of, I should say, perceived blessing. Again, there's more blessed to give than to receive. For mature believers, the transcendent gifts are given by God after the initial transaction. It means there's something much more to the transaction itself. If I give you a gift at Christmas time, that's great. I mean, you might. But the transcendent gift, the greater gift, is what I receive the blessing that I receive in giving. And that's transcendent, and that's something that the world, frankly, can't even understand because it's spiritually appraised. And that's what the Spirit's been saying, and that's what he started, uh, and that's what Christmas really instigated from this pulpit, was the gift of giving. It's more blessed to give than to receive. For the mature believers, 
The transcendent gifts are given by God after the initial transaction. However, for the immature and the unbelievers, the first transaction, if you want to call it that, closes all aspects of perceived blessing, or maybe even blessing. This is what Jesus was getting at when he made that statement. And I suppose that's why Christmas time is split between two camps, even among believers. Those that get it and those that don't yet. Those that get it and those that don't yet. There's a lot of believers out there that don't understand the greatest blessing is to be able to give. The greater transcendent blessings are after the transaction, if you would. But that will come in time. And that's why I make that distinction between maturity. And then there are those who celebrate Christmas that literally can't get it. Those are the unregenerate. I shared some quotes with you from Jonathan Edwards, a prominent 17th century theologian and preacher. I did so in order to amplify what the Spirit's trying to impress upon us regarding the fundamentals of spiritually appraised wisdom. And this is something that, as we get into this morning's lesson, uh, you will agree, based on Scripture, that spiritually appraised wisdom comes with sanctification. The more that you're set apart for God's purposes, the more spiritually appraised wisdom you will realize. And you will realize base principles, not just, it's more blessed to give than to receive, but the gravity of what that means will hit home the more you're sanctified. So reflecting, unbelievers do have a certain wisdom. I mean, you can't say every unbeliever doesn't have some kind of worldly wisdom. They have a certain wisdom. They even write best-selling books about it. And as far as the world is concerned, their, quote, wisdom has value. However, it only bears secular value to folks who understand Jesus' words, say, in Acts 20.35. It's more blessed to give than to receive. For example, it's very possible that the greatest financial investor on the planet is an unbeliever. That's very possible. I don't know, but it's quite possible that the greatest financial investor on the planet is an unbeliever. And if I wanted to invest some money, let's say, I'd certainly consult with him or her. Or maybe it's a doctor or a lawyer or a policeman or a special agent at the FBI, all of which might have lots of valuable wisdom regarding the world and its ways. Those are fair statements. So there's a certain worldly wisdom. But we are not talking about worldly things here. Even some of these folks might consult the Bible for the sake of adjusting their own moral compasses. But that doesn't mean that they get it. Certainly, if they're not believers, they don't have the ability to get it. So the greater blessings are reserved for God's children. But here's the distinction the Spirit's making. There are types of wisdom, and we should be aware of this. We shouldn't be confused. Uh, Even if an unbeliever quotes Scripture, doesn't mean they understand it. I could get an unbeliever that actually would say, right now, 
Yeah, I agree. It's more blessed to give than to receive. I feel better when I give than when I receive. So for me, it makes sense. But they don't understand. They don't have the faculties, if you would, to understand the transcendent aspects of that statement from our Lord. So there are types of wisdom. Just because a person consults the Bible for moral guidance doesn't mean they understand the spiritual significance of it. There are many unbelievers who quote the Bible as a moral compass, in part, but have no interest in Jesus as Lord or Savior. I mean, you can turn on the television and find someone that's quoting the Bible that is a stark unbeliever. The way they mash it together is they say, I believe that the Bible is a good moral code, so I pick and choose what I want, and then I go to this other religion over here, and I pick and choose from that one what I want. And then I, that's, this seems to be the order of the day, amen? Most people sort of think it's like going to, you know, the market basket, and you sort of take some fruit, and then you take some bananas, or some, uh, that's fruit, huh? Then you take some vegetables, and you go over, and you, you know, and it's like this sort of hodgepodge. Then you go to Hannaford's, and you take some fruit from Hannaford's, and, some, and then you go to Shaw's, and you do this thing, and it's like, no, you don't get to choose that. There's only one grocery store, right? And so there are different types of wisdom here. Let's get back on course here. Just because a person consults the Bible for moral guidance doesn't mean they understand the spiritual significance of it. There are many unbelievers who quote the Bible as a moral compass in part, but have no interest in Jesus as Lord or Savior. Sorry about that typo. It's not there. It's, it should be T-H-E-R-E. As DJ, uh, while he was here, my mom and I were discussing early this morning before the rest of y'all came up here, uh, um, knowledge and wisdom are two different things. And in the end times, knowledge will increase, but true wisdom will be on the decline overall. While it may spike with earnest disciples of Jesus, knowledge will increase. The Bible says that. In, In end times, certain knowledge will increase. There will be a certain... Even a morality, a worldly morality, uh, that will increase. And it may be based on certain biblical principles, but the problem is the purveyors of it, those that actually propagate it, they don't want Jesus. They don't want a Lord. They don't want a Savior. They're okay with God. So they just sort of hack up the Bible and use knowledge from it. And that's not what we're after at all. The point is that true wisdom isn't available to everyone. And this is what Jonathan Edwards was getting at, and I'll read him quickly again, and I excuse his speech, it's just the way they wrote back a couple few hundred years ago. On spiritual light, this spiritual light is not the suggesting of any new truths or propositions not contained in the Word of God. This suggesting of new truths or doctrines to the mind, independent of any antecedent Revelation of those propositions, either in word or writing, is inspiration, such as the prophets and apostles had, and such as some enthusiasts pretend to. But this spiritual light that I am speaking of is quite a different thing than inspiration. It reveals no new doctrine. It suggests no new proposition to the mind. It teaches no new thing of God or Christ or another world nor taught in the Bible, but only gives a due apprehension of those things that are taught in the Word of God. 
Thus, there is a difference between having an opinion that God is holy and gracious and having a sense of the loveliness and beauty of that holiness and grace. There is a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense of its sweetness. A man may have the former that knows not how honey tastes, but a man cannot have the latter unless he has an idea of the taste of honey in his mind. So, there is a difference between believing that a person is beautiful and having a sense of his beauty. The former may be obtained by hearsay, but the latter only by seeing the countenance. When the heart is sensible of the beauty and amiableness of a thing, it necessarily feels pleasure in the apprehension. And then he closes with, It is implied in a person's being heartily sensible of the loveliness of a thing that the idea of it is pleasant to his soul, which is a far different thing from having a rational opinion that it is excellent. And you can use uh, uh, something that Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And that's really what Edwards was getting at, that only a believer uh, will understand the truth or the excellency through spiritual apprehension of such things. The rest of the, the world, it's just a moral code or it's something they might live by or maybe even agree to, but it's just a worldly or secular type of wisdom. Last Tuesday, we closed up shop regarding 2 Timothy 3, 6, and 7 with that emphasis on weak women and those that go into households and uh, take advantage or captivate weak women. And the fact that the original Greek in that phrase, weak women, brought out a bit of contempt and scorn from Paul even towards those in that estate of emotional weakness, those in what I like to call dysfunction junction, so to speak. During those studies, we arrived at this. This certainly was an emphasis, and it came out even in the blogs during that time. Responsibility for self. A fundamental tenet of biblical healing and freedom is that a person takes responsibility for themselves, their decisions. And really how we came or arrived at that point was that based on Paul's estimation of weak women, given that there was a bit of scorn there even, a bit of, hey, listen, you're there because of your own choosing, because of your own sinning. And we learned and were reminded by the Spirit that no one sins for us. We may be tempted and we may be weak from without, those that come in, but nonetheless, we are still responsible for our own sins. And that's what Paul was saying. And if you're unwilling to take responsibility for yourself, you'll always be learning and never come to the truth. And so the Spirit really took us through this process of um, really healing for some people. Taking responsibility requires confession. He's been incrementally re-equipping most of us on the word confession. Most people think confession, okay, I've got to get down on my knees, I've got to confess my sins. No, confession means to agree with God. Where's your life compared to God's will? Sometimes it comes out positive, sometimes it comes out negative. That's all confession means. It's much broader than most people think because of religion, the pervasiveness of religion. 
So taking responsibility requires confession, which really is a fundamental aspect then of sanctification. In other words, to drive that point home, he gave us this. Sanctification depends upon confession. In brief, you won't be sanctified if you don't agree with God. Kind of an impossibility. So sanctification depends upon confession. Confession is simply being honest with God in the privacy of your own soul. Not that He needs to be informed, rather that you need to face the facts about yourself. God already knows everything, even that you're going to do tomorrow, whether it's right or wrong. The idea is in your own personal progress, progressive sanctification, experiential sanctification, you realize what's going on in your own life. That you understand uh, your standing beside the truth and the Word of God. You understand your relationship with God and whether it's right or wrong uh, in that moment or in that particular decision. And that's really what confession brings about. So sanctification, as we get to this good work, this third principle in the title, uh, a lot of it depends on and begins with confession, and not just confession of sins. Don't do that to yourself. Confession is not just confession of sins. Confession is you agreeing with God about everything. So concentrate. Again, I warned you. We consider the Spirit's convicting ministry in our lives, whose aim is to truly sanctify each of us for the sake of bringing glory to God. So who's going to help us, in other words, in our confession? Who's going to let us know? Who's going to bring to remembrance Scripture so that we can be convicted one way or another? God the Holy Spirit. That's His ministry. So the Spirit took us back to, hey, listen, I have a convicting ministry in your life. It's going to help you confess, right or wrong. And in that time, if you agree with God, then He can start that or complete that good work, you see? He's going to keep going with that work unless you say, I disagree, and now you have a sin issue you have to deal with, which, as the Bible says, can cause a problem in your life. So we considered the Spirit's convicting ministry in our lives whose aim is truly to sanctify each of us for the sake of bringing glory to God. So we have sort of a swarm of doctrines coming together all at once in our studies. Spirituality, um, you know, filling of the Spirit, that whole thing. <clears throat> Sanctification, confession, and even obedience. Go to 2 Corinthians 9.13. Even obedience, which began to percolate up when we revisited the filling of the Spirit. Remember, that's all the Spirit's job is to do, is to convince you to confess truth. Based on truth. To agree with God. 2 Corinthians 9.13, so obedience comes up. Spirituality, sanctification, confession, and even obedience, these things are all related. 2 Corinthians 9.13, because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel 
of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all. Obviously, we're in the middle in that passage in the middle of a practical issue, a giving issue. We looked at that this past week, but the Spirit's got us focusing on they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them, uh, to them and to all, while they also by prayer on your behalf yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And that was the sort of um, punchline, if you would, of the Christmas special lesson. That passage, just those three verses, is actually so impregnated with doctrine that it's hard to just let it go right now for fear that most of you will miss it. However, since this is not our goal this morning, we must press on. Considering the obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ. Obedience is a massive theme, folks, in the Word of God. A lot of people hear that word, obey, obedience, and they sort of have that knee-jerk, adolescent response. Like, oh, I don't like the commands of God. I don't want to have to obey. It's oppressive to me. I'm my own person. That kind of garbage. And all the Spirit's been doing for years now from this pulpit, I'm convinced of it, is delivering us from such preconceptions, such evil. Things like confession is just for sin. That's evil. Confession is somehow a gateway to the filling of the Spirit. That's evil. Obedience to commands is somehow a burden. That's evil. So he's really trying to deliver us, sanctify, from those things, from this place to this place, from bondage, experiential bondage, to experiential freedom. One of the great paradoxes, if you want to call it that, in the spiritual life is this simple statement up here. To be free, one must obey. Sounds like a paradox, but it's not. We have a perfect master who said, you are free. I went to the cross to set you free. Obey me. Follow me. So to be free, one must obey. Go to 2 Corinthians 3.17. 2 Corinthians 3.17 And the Spirit will, in His convicting ministry, trying to get us to confess that truth on the board, will convict us of to be free, one must obey. That's His job. 2 Corinthians 3.17 amplifies it. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Liberty. That's freedom. He's the one who's going to convince us of that truth on the board. Anyone here not want to be free? Of course you do. Anyone not want to obey? Sometimes. Everybody wants to be free, but no, we don't always want to obey. So, verse 17, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, freedom. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. To be transformed means to be sanctified are being transformed, sanctified into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, 
the Spirit. Again, the point on the board is to be free, one must obey. That whole statement really is a view into sanctification. Who's not, assuming you've all grown over the years, who's not freer now than they used to be? Of course you are. Well, how'd that work? You kept learning the Word of God, which is actually obedience. You chose over time to obey, assumably. And when you did that, when you confessed, whether it was sin or righteousness, you agreed with God, and in all of that, He was able to move you to set you apart to greater and greater purposes, to bring glory to Him. So to be free, one must obey. And again, what the Spirit's saying is, it's my job to convince you, to convict you of such truths. In other words, one of the keys to understanding sanctification, then, is obedience. Obedience is a huge part of sanctification. It begins at salvation with submission to the Lord and continues with increased orientation to God's ultimate will for His children to be conformed to the image of His Son, Romans 8.29. Obedience is a huge part of sanctification. But you know how the flesh is with the very word obey or any variant thereof. It begins at salvation with submission to the Lord and continues with increased orientation to God's ultimate will for His children to be conformed to the image of His Son, Romans 8.29. Go to Romans 8.28 then. Romans 8.28. So the Spirit's not letting that go. He wants you to understand in a healthy way that obedience is a very good thing. If anything, obedience takes a lot of the weight off. That's why Jesus said, well, my burden's light, right? So obedience actually takes a lot of weight off of us. Why? Because when you're obeying, you're just following His command. That means the decision-making really has been handed over to Him, the Word and the Spirit. That, to me, makes it a lot easier. If you ignore that and say, I'm going to cut my own path through the woods, well, now you're riddled with insecurity and anxiety. Well, is this the right decision? Is that the right decision? Is this the right decision? Is that the right? And every step of the way is, is anxiety, is worry, is concern. That's not freedom. And that's what independence, which is in many ways the antithesis of obedience, does even to a believer. Romans 8.28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, we also predestined to become conformed, and that's ultimately sanctified, but still part of the sanctification vector, if you would, to become conformed, ultimately sanctified to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. That's just pointing to us in the eternal state even. And these whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. That, in a sense, is a peek into the future. But the point, again, up here on the board is obedience is a huge part of sanctification. It begins at salvation with submission to the Lord 
and continues with increased orientation to God's ultimate will for his children, which is to be ultimately sanctified, without a sin nature, you know, resurrection body in heaven, perfect bliss, happiness, no more of these problems, no more, you know, tear, no more sorrow, no more pain. Uh, that's what it means to be ultimately sanctified. Well, that's the end goal. But then there's the space in between where grace is activated in our lives. We call that experiential sanctification or progressive sanctification. But it's always towards the ultimate goal. We just don't reach it in time. But it's in that general direction. So the big picture often conveyed theologically as, is often conveyed the, theologically as three separate phases of sanctification. But it's really from faith to faith. It's God says, I'm going to sanctify you. Positionally at, sancti- at uh, salvation, experientially as you live out this life by means of grace, and then ultimately after I give you a new body and get rid of that old roommate. But it's all in the same direction, and I hope you see it. And that's what Paul meant when he said, from faith to faith. It starts at salvation, and then it's sanctification the whole way. In any case, the big picture is that all sanctification is by the will and determination and grace of God. And when God's grace is evidenced in time, it brings glory to Him. When Paul says, I am what I am by the grace of God, anything I'm doing good here is reflecting back to His grace. Even the blessings that I have, His grace. Understanding something like it's more blessed to give than to receive. His grace. That's why we, in 1 Thessalonians 5, you know, pray without ceasing. Be thankful for everything, because that is what's pleasing to God. And a grace-oriented person can't help but be thankful for what? Everything. Because everything that I am is by the grace of God. I am what I am by the grace of God. So these things all dovetail together. And that's all the Spirit's trying to convince you of. So when you are sanctified, set apart as you mature, the more grace-oriented you become, the more grace-oriented you become, the more thankful you are, the more you live in a literally a reality. I call it the gospel reality, because what's greater thankful than that? But literally you live in a reality of grace, in a reality that is ever thankful. And that's what he's trying to do. You can't do that if you consistently say, nope, I'm a sophomoric, adolescent person. I don't want to follow the commands of God because they're oppressive. Somehow they're, I don't know, ruining my life. Somehow, you know, whatever that command is, I don't like it. And to that degree, you're stunting your own spiritual growth. To that degree, you're still in bondage instead of freedom. As we've studied in the past, a person cannot sanctify themselves in any way Hence the emphasis on obedience. Go to Colossians 3.9. Colossians 3.9. Just may I remind you that he's trying to bring multiple things together all at once. I hope you still got those things in front of you. Sanctification, confession, spirituality, obedience. He's trying to bring these core doctrines, if you would, together. So that you understand the synchronicity of it all, that, that that's all part of sanctification proper. 
Colossians 3.9, Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. That's also a nice end goal picture for God's will regarding sanctifying you. So here's what's being synthesized this morning up here on the board. It's probably your greatest point of concentration so far. Up here on the board, sanctification, because this is where we're going. But sanctification is not minus all these other doctrines. There's a reason why we started with gospel and salvation. We had to get that right. From faith has to be right. Without any loose ends that can mess up our doctrines later on. Sanctification. God's will is to sanctify us in order to bring glory to himself. Let's not forget that. That's why the emphasis on sanctifying self, I'm going to be disobedient, I got it from here, God, thank you very much, is garbage. We don't sanctify ourselves. We are powerless to do that thing. God's will is to sanctify us in order to bring glory to himself. We can't do that minus his grace, minus his provisions, his providence in our lives. We cannot do it. It's an impossibility. God's will is to sanctify us in order to bring glory to himself. First, he saves us by grace. We know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Then he sanctifies us by grace, Colossians 3, 10. Sanctification implies obedience. Obedience begins with confession, right or wrong. This is bringing most of what we've considered this morning already together into one principle again. We're talking about sanctification. That's the overarching principle. God's will is to sanctify us in order to bring glory to, uh, glory to himself. That's sort of the end goal. First, he saves us by grace, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Then he sanctifies us by grace. Same grace, different, quote, phases of sanctification, if you want to look at it that way. Colossians 3, 10. However, sanctification implies obedience. That was a previous point. Obedience begins with confession. That was another point. Right or wrong? So these things come together. And it isn't until the flesh tries to, what, pluck a couple of things out, disregard one thing, not really like in obedience. Well, if you're disobedient, you might not be confessing. If you're not confessing, then you cannot be sanctified, and you see how it goes. That's why I believe so many people sort of stall out. They don't accelerate the way they could and should in the spiritual life. It's because of their consistent disobedience to the Word of God. And it's not like, I can only speak for this pulpit, it's not like this pulpit doesn't give you commands, doesn't give you challenging things to think about. But all of those things are really to sanctify you. Because a lot of people are stuck. They have their own little religions. They hear something in the Scripture come from the, from the Holy Spirit, from this pulpit, and they go, nope. They literally go, nope. Don't like that one. Nope. And then they wonder why they're a weak woman. 
Why in that area of their life? They're easily dragged away. It's because they keep refusing to obey. So the Holy Spirit can convict you all day long, but at the end of the day, it's that one little thing. It's that one little thing called your free will. Humility chooses for God. Arrogance chooses for self. It's that simple. Hence our more practical principle from last week. Again, up on the board, God's will is to sanctify us in order to bring Glory to himself first. He saves us by grace and he sanctifies us by grace. Sanctification implies obedience. Obedience begins with confession, right or wrong. And then a more practical principle from last week was this up here on the board. To help amplify the previous principle, the spirit in confession, obedience is a function of being filled. For example, love, walk, do, forgive, confess, etc. In other words, God the Holy Spirit's always going to convict you to what? Obey. Here's the scripture. I just brought up in your mind. Here's the scripture. You have a choice before you. The person who's filled or controlled, plural, by the Spirit, chooses for God. The one who decides against chooses for self. And that's how it goes. Obedience, then, is a function of being filled. Therefore, obeying the command to confess, even, is a function of being filled. It is the Spirit that convicts a person of right and wrong, leading a person to confession. And all the Spirit was doing there was smashing any remnants of religion you might have regarding confession and confession and the filling of the Spirit. In other words, if you could not be convicted by the Spirit because you were, what, had a sin in your life, that kind of a thing, well then who's going to convict you of that good thing? So, To amplify that even further, it seems some people have gotten that backwards saying something religious like confession provides access to the Spirit. That's a lie. That's human works. You just made God, the Holy Spirit, your puppet. He doesn't need you to agree with Him for Him to convict you. Does that make sense? Because He's always going to convict you of the right thing. He doesn't need you to agree with Him. Do you understand? saying things like religious things. These are true religion. Confession provides, provides access to the Spirit. That's human works. Man proposes he's the Spirit's puppeteer. So concentrate even further. In other words, the Spirit and confession. Consider, conf- all right, is confession to agree with God. Just don't even look at the rest of the thing. Stop reading. Eyes up here. True confession, agreeing with God. Is that a divine good thing? Okay. Who's the only person, the only power that enables us to do anything divinely good? God. Okay. So true confession is a divine good work. Is that fair? Okay. So confession is a divine good thing. If a believer is supposedly without the Spirit or his ministry, then what supernatural power do they have available to them to perform the divine good work of confession? I mean, in other words, if you could somehow alienate the Spirit in his ministry in your life, where he's no longer able to convict you of right or wrong, what did Jesus do to God? What does that imply? It implies that 
You have more power than God. Look, to say that a man somehow has the ability to shut down the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to say that man is somehow more powerful than he is. That's religion. Religion doesn't sanctify. God does. Religion doesn't sanctify. God does. Now, the spirits used family as a lever for practical thinking. And all of this, all this good work, and I hope you see how he's bringing it back to sanctification. He's also not just bringing together, you know, four or five core doctrines. He's also hitting us with practical issues like family in the Christmas season to help sort of stimulate that kind of thinking to stimulate, to bring up, to be a wonderful lever to talk about these things. Because it's one thing just to talk about them academically. It's a whole other thing to think about something everyone in here can relate to, family. What in the world does family have to do with sanctification? A lot. After all, we are God's children. And who's trying to sanctify us in his own family? He is. Family's a big, big deal to God. And that was one thing that God the Holy Spirit impressed upon us much more than I even expected as the shepherd here. But he did it, and he did it in a timely way. He did it during Christmas season, not by accident, because everybody seems to be hypersensitive towards family. You know, everybody's getting together again at Christmas, and, you know, there's a whole hodgepodge of individuals in every family. There's unbelievers, there's antagonistic unbelievers, there's whatever believers, there's, there's everything going on. There's agents for Christ, there's agents for Satan. Some are trying to keep the family together, some are trying to blow it up. Some are Christ-absorbed, some are self-absorbed. It's just a hodgepodge. But it's family. And God's been saying, listen, we have to think about Family. If we're going to talk about sanctification, we have to think about family. So the spirits use family as a lever for practical thinking in order to drive home the core facets of the doctrine of sanctification. For example, when we looked at 2 Timothy 3, 6, and 7, remember the intimacy there was that these false teachers went into the households of weak women. There's an intimacy there. There's a, you know, there's no honor with sin. Sin certainly doesn't honor family. So in 2 Timothy 3, 6 and 7, I believe this is where we ended on Tuesday, Paul is pointing out two breaches of the family. It's a sin to infiltrate a family by taking advantage of its weaknesses from without Number two, it's a sin to continue to make choices that make a family weak from within. Now, whether or not you're on the outside or the end or you played both parts, it doesn't matter. That's between you and the Lord. But that's what he said about family, and that's why we spent all that time investigating and not and taking responsibility even for ourselves. Because how many people are, you know, purposely false teachers going into households trying to blow up families. Well, they're probably not here. Which means that most of us, I believe, 
were pointed towards the weak women. In other words, let's stop being susceptible. Let's stop being, quote, cancerous within the family. Let's stop being self-absorbed in the family and causing or wreaking more havoc even than we already have to deal with because of the condition of this world. And I believe that's the emphasis that he gave us with 2 Timothy 3, 6, and 7. Again, from without and from within. Remember, God always, or always that God is the author of family. Go to Ephesians 3.15. Ephesians 3.15. Sorry, I was getting distracted by the 4 by 4s or whatever's out there. Tooling around. Remember always that God is the author of family. Ephesians 3.15. From whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Remember how we started off this morning. The love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory. Think about that. So you have this wonderful passage highlighting the fundamentals of sanctification, even family in view. And where does the glory go? To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, to all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's the end goal of sanctification, to bring Him glory. That's why, ultimately, when you obey, when you confess, when you obey, you bring glory to Him because that's how you're sanctified. That's how He works with you. The contents of Ephesians 3 are why the Lord God desires to sanctify us. The artifacts of true faith in this passage bring glory to God. So to help drive home this point, the Spirit's been highlighting the value of family and the unity of the faith. As when family flourishes in our lives, we know we are being sanctified. When family flourishes in our lives, we know that we are being sanctified. Whatever that means to you. For starters, after salvation, we are new family. I had multiple conversations with people over the holiday that were upset by the condition of their own families. That it was difficult for them to sit down and have dinner with people that maybe they don't even want to pray. Maybe they don't want to give even thanksgiving for the food. Maybe Jesus Christ is literally the last person on their minds. But yet it's Christmas. And they're all supposedly celebrating Christmas. 
And the last person on their mind is Jesus Christ. And that upsets people. I know it upsets me. After salvation, we are new family. At least we have this. My response was always, listen, even if your family goes off the cliff and just, you know, disintegrates, you have family. Here, at least. You have family in the unity of the faith because you're one of his adopted sons. And that's a beautiful thing. Nobody can take that away from you. After salvation, we are new family. We are family. Our family will endure. We are going to spend eternity together. Why not embrace our heavenly family now even more so than our earthly ones? And let's pray they are one in the same. 1 John 3, 1 to 2. Up here on the board, 1 John 3, 1. And the message reads, What marvelous love the Father has extended to us. Just look at it. We're called children of God. That's who we really are. But that's also why the world doesn't recognize us or take us seriously. Because it has no idea who he is or what he's up to. No idea. Then another conversation, an intimate conversation, you know, with family members. And I said, you know, at the end of the day, all of this, we were talking about this before class as well, all of this, no matter what the the thing is, it's always principally about Christ. All of this, all the distractions, all the, the family issues, at the end of the day, if everyone were to, quote, magically begin following Christ, we'd all be unified. Christmas dinner, Thanksgiving dinner, you know, Easter dinner, those wouldn't be times for consternation. Those wouldn't be times to be where anxiety bubbles up. Everybody would be like, this is great. Jesus Christ, he's the centerpiece of our table. Of course we're going to pray. Of course we're going to celebrate Jesus Christ and not the gifts we gave each other. Of course we're going to celebrate the things that matter most. But that's far cry from most get-togethers. Fair enough? Unfortunately. In the midst of confusion, and that's what Christmas time has become for many, even for Christians, In the midst of this year's chaos, may we cling to what we know to be true. John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And where's God the Father intent on sanctifying us? To the image of His Son. That's the ultimate goal. That's what sanctification means, folks. The Word is truth. We're commanded to obey the Word. The Word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So let's focus on our eternal family this year without forgetting or leaving behind our worldly families, of course. doesn't mean our responsibilities go to the wayside. There's Scripture for that as well. But the Spirit wants you to have a renewed or refreshed sense of family, spiritual family. And I think that's because he wants to ensure a certain amount of encouragement in your own soul. Because worldly families can bring you down pretty quick. Take you places that you don't really need to go. Let's do as the Holy Scripture says, shall we? Go to Galatians 
6, 9. Galatians 6, 9. Let's do as the scripture says. Let's follow a command because this is a command. But remember, if you want to be set free, you must be sanctified. To be sanctified, you must obey. So if you want continued freedom in spite of or despite of your crazy families or the agents that Satan uses in your families, your worldly families that are consistently trying to blow things up and all that, quote, you know, nasty stuff, let us be encouraged. Galatians 6, 9, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. Especially to those who are of the household of the faith. That's not a misprint. That's not a mistake. And you're reading it correctly, especially to those of the household of the faith. Those are the people gathered here this morning. Maybe not the same set of people that gathered together on Christmas morning. Maybe not. can pray that it is, but maybe not. And if not, then they're not included in the especially part. That's the point. Especially to those who are of the household of the faith. We can't dismiss that. Most of us are under tremendous attack right now. So let us increase our own love of family. And not just when it's in season. Not just when it's Christmas time. Or not just when it's Thanksgiving. Those aren't the time. We should be loving our family. Especially the head of the family, Jesus Christ. The head of the body. Every day. Do we, should we really need Christmas to remind us to love Jesus? To appreciate God's family? Do we really need a holiday to remind us? Shouldn't we be celebrating every day? Yeah. You know why? God loves families. It's true. He loves families. What a wonderful thing that is to realize For every wound received, there is an ointment in the word of God, bar none. For every one given, there is forgiveness, bar none. Be encouraged, God loves you. I know a lot of people right now are still wounded. And they're sort of nursing wounds. But God says, I want to unify you, despite the world, despite the hardships you might have faced personally this, quote, Christmas season. And he's saying, don't you let whatever goes on in your secular family blow up the unity that I have in mind. Don't you let that distract you from eternal truths. Because there's going to be a lot of, unfortunately, to say it this way, but there's going to be a lot of people in those gatherings, secular gatherings, that aren't going to be with us in heaven. And he wants you to remember that you have a family that transcends any of this potential agony down here. For every wound received is an ointment in the word of God, bar none. For everyone given there is forgiveness, bar none. Be encouraged. God loves you. He loves families. He wants to ensure that we find that unity. Again, Galatians 6.10, 
So then, while we have the opportunity, let us do good to all people that is command, especially to those who are of the household of the faith. That's a command. Why? Because if we follow that command, then our spiritual family comes together and we're all blessed as a result. And we don't lose heart and grow weary. Before we close this morning, we need to clean up a few loose ends in our studies as of late. And I kind of warned you, there's still some things you have to concentrate on. He really is bringing multiple things together over the last few weeks. On that note of commands, which really echoes of obedience, which now is tied to sanctification, should be, we've noted many commands in Scripture, even pointed them out, such as, let us do good to all people, especially to those of the household of faith. That's a command meant to ultimately sanctify you in time. As we learned last Sunday, it's best to consider his commands as follows. And this is a revelation for people, I think. Commands ought to be considered as the expressed will of God. In obedience, we will follow his commands, revealing his love in us. But his commands aren't ever meant to spawn religion. His Spirit convicts us to obey, for example, to love. Everything the Spirit's going to motivate you to think, say, or do is going to be consistent with love. That's what it means to be filled. God is love. Obey means to be consistent with His will. There's never any part of His will, ever, that's not done in love. Even when he's disciplining. That's what the scripture says. A father who disciplines his child loves that child. So it doesn't matter how he's touching us, how he's reaching to us. It's always in love. So everything the Spirit's going to motivate you to think, say, or do is going to be consistent with love. This takes us back to where we were before our little sidebar on family. So let's finish that good work, and then I'll close. And again, he's just trying to give you perspective, the right perspective, so that you think about sanctification the right way, that you don't have any leftover remnants or artifacts of religion, that you don't have that anymore. He wants you to sweep it away and say, I want you to have the right perspective on all of this. This is how I'm going to go about sanctifying you. And you can't make me a puppeteer. Or you can't be my little puppeteer. If your conception of the filling of the Spirit is perverted even in the least bit, then your understanding of the fundamental doctrine of sanctification will be proportionally perverted. Remember, only God can sanctify. Remember, the Spirit is characterized as our helper, not someone who's pulling us in and out of the Father's plan somehow. That's something man invented out of religion. And here's that helpful graphic that I shared with you a couple of Sundays back now. A lot of good feedback on it, by the way. All filling really ends up being, or is equivalent to, or means, is to, when you're obeying a command. If there's a command and you obey it, you know that the Spirit was right there, encouraging you, influencing you to what? To obey. And when you obey, you're going to be what? Sanctified. So this all goes back to sanctification proper. Just a little legend up here. Not filled is the red line, filled is the green line. This is just an example, so don't get goofy with it. Don't make all this 
hardcore doctrine. He's trying to make a point so that any religion you might have left in you is done away with. These are general commands, more specific. So I just say a general command, love God. So maybe you're an unbeliever, you don't love God at all. You become a believer, you love God, okay? How about another command? You are to reject idolatry. For a while you have, you know, you idolize yourself, but then you get it straight. Jesus is the only celebrity. And then maybe, you you know, get back into idolatry again. Start idolizing other people. You start watching too much American Idol and you're like, that's my idol right there, you know. They're such wonderful singers or whatever they do up on that stage. (laughs) Another command, getting more specific, do not covet. So maybe you don't have a problem with it, but then all of a sudden you have a couple of issues. You're like, hey, my neighbor's got a new car, or my neighbor's got a new spouse even, uh, and I covet these things. You have a couple of problems, but then you recover. Let's just say, these are just examples. You know, do not steal for a while, you're good, but then you start cheating on your taxes, and then you get back into place, okay? So there you go. you got some examples. All he's really saying is, is that a fair question? Because all of these things can coexist at the same time in your life. Fair statement? Hundreds of commands exist in your life. Some more general, some more specific. And you're having to deal with them at the same time as you're going about. So when someone says, hey, are you filled? Well, it depends on how you're talking about it. Is it a fair question? And that's all the Spirit was saying. Because in one sense, loving God, yeah, I love God. So in that sense, certainly am in agreement with the Spirit. Uh, I'm rejecting idolatry. I don't have any idols that I know of right now, you know, that type of thing. But, you know, kind of got a problem with my uh, neighbor's new hot rod. You know, why doesn't God give me that kind of grace? Why doesn't God, you know, this kind of problem? And maybe I got a little problem with my taxes. So, in those senses, you're not really filled. And that's what the Spirit's saying. He's trying to retool some of you to think about commands against the filling of the Spirit. The principle is simple. You may be simultaneously obeying one command, but not another. So in this sense, there's a bad question, potentially, that some of you may still be asking, self or even others, that question, am I filled, is a bad question if it sits by itself. The better question to be asking yourselves is, which of God's commands am I obeying and which am I not? That's what the Bible teaches us. Obey my commands. One of which is to be filled. (laughs) Which means listen to the Holy Spirit. One of them which, you know, which confess, forgive, Walk, do, all these commands, all simultaneously happening at the same time in your soul. So it's not a fair question to say, are you filled? Oh, I don't know. I mean, it's better to think about the filling of the Spirit against commands. Again, the right perspective, to the degree that you are not obeying the one command, you are filled. Or to the degree you are obeying the one command, you are filled. And likewise, to the degree you are disobeying another command, you are not filled. These instances overlap in life. We also looked at the simple fact that the filling is applied to specific commands and instances in life, namely our responses to the convicting ministry of the Spirit. A perfect example. A perfect example was of a couple of folks that were not filled is the story of Ananias and his wife, Sapphira. Up here on the board, we read it together. 
Acts 5.3, but Peter said, Ananias, why is Satan filled? Same Greek word, pleroo. Your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? Well, that was one instance. We don't know exactly what else was going on. We can't say they didn't love God. We know that he was saved. We can't say they didn't love God and wasn't filled in that way. But in this particular instance, he certainly was not filled. The Holy Spirit, in other words, would never have convicted him to lie to him. So, Ananias failed to obey the Spirit's conviction, to be honest. Therefore, he was not filled with the Spirit on that issue, but rather, as Peter says, Satan had filled, pleroo, controlled his heart. And I want to look at one more passage to help drive the principle regarding all this on commands, obedience, filling, before we close. And I'm hoping this puts the doctrine of the filling of the Spirit to rest once and for all for you. It's critical as we press on in our study of sanctification. Now, as we read this familiar passage, I'm going to point out all the commands to you. And notice that they are very specific commands, each of which the Spirit will rightly convict us to obey. In other words, there are instances. It's obey this command, obey this command, obey this command. Maybe I'll obey this one, maybe I won't. To the degree I obey, I'm filled. To the degree I don't, I'm not. As we know, any of which of these commands, we may be able to reject our helper's conviction and be filled with an ungodly heart like Ananias. Go to Ephesians 5.15. Ephesians 5.15. Ephesians 5.15. Therefore, be careful how you walk, command, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, command, because the days are evil. Then do not be foolish, command, but understand what the will of the Lord is, command. And do not get drunk with wine, command, for that is dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit, command, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ, command, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Command, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Command implied. Husbands, love your wives. Command, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle, remember, obeying commands brings glory to God, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies, command. He who loves his own wife loves himself, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. 
because we are members of his body, think of family, think of these commands as collectively pointing towards the unity of the faith, obedience, sanctification. These are all part of the same thing. Because we are members of his body, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Commands. The point is that any, at any given point in time, we are obeying some commands while possibly disobeying others. So the reason for revisiting the doctrine of the filling of the Spirit is to get your perspective right. It's critical. I can't teach you about sanctification if you've got the Spirit's ministry in your life tweaked. If you've got some kind of religion regarding the Spirit's and His availability even to you. If that's tweaked, then you're not going to get what you need to get out of the teaching regarding sanctification. You're going to maybe still have him as a puppet. So the right perspective, again, if your conception of the filling of spirit is perverted even in the least bit, then your understanding of the fundamental doctrine of sanctification will be proportionally perverted. And then one last tie back to all the good work we've done together on the gospel even. You see how far he's taking it back now up here on the board. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. A perverted gospel demands a perverted sanctification. In other words, if a core doctrine is, quote, off, the ripple effect is felt, quote, throughout the body of doctrines that build upon it. We did all that work on a weak or cheapened gospel, one that was minus all the facets of the saving truth that Jesus Christ himself presented. I even wrote a booklet on it to make sure that we had it established as a congregation. If we don't get the gospel right, then anything that builds upon it, i.e. the rest of the word of God, is going to have holes in it, is going to have perversions that turn out to be little religions. And people are going to remain in bondage and won't be sanctified the way they could be if they understood the whole truth about the gospel, our starting point from faith. So a little leaven leavens the whole lump. That's why we've taken, I mean, we're on part, what, 31? 31. So before I close, what do we have on the table? Again, this is what you're going to have to take with you as you synthesize in your own time, as we prepare to travel home. I haven't heard any coughs. This is absolutely amazing. Half of you are sick, and I haven't heard one cough, I don't think. Synthesizing. What is on the table? Well, we've looked at the gospel and salvation. That was probably 20 or so parts. That's 20 hours. And if you've been in this church for any length of time, 20 hours from this pulpit, that's like drinking from a fire hose. Seriously, you're stuffed. Amen? I don't know. You guys, you must say, you guys, you guys must be like really, I don't know, spongy. I'm ser- I can't imagine teaching more stuff in a single lesson than I do. Honestly, I don't. I mean, so you, you guys have a tremendous concentration 
which is really a, a testimony to His grace. But anyways, what's on us, the gospel and salvation, we spent a lot of time on that, folks, getting it right, being honest. Positional sanctification has been on the table. What does it mean to be saved? What are the forensic aspects of salvation? What are the truths? What's our sense of assurance? Where do we start in all of this? The Holy Spirit's ministry at and after salvation, working with the Word. He is our helper. He's here to remind us of truth. He's here to work with us with the newfound faculties that we're given as regenerate individuals. But we've got to get that right. We can't pretend that we can control them with our little religions. We have to make sure we understand what his ministry is there for. Experiential and progressive sanctification. All of that builds towards this thing that we're, quote, experiencing right now. What does it mean to be sanctified in time? How's this going to work? How's this happen in my life? He's also used a variety of practical examinations like family and weak women and sexual sins and the consequences of sin, etc., etc. He used a whole host of practical examinations along the way to drive these critical points home. There's one last principle that we need to close with. I know I kind of lied, didn't I? Because like, come on, I just said you were sponges, so suck it up. One last thing. I, let me. One last thing. The Spirit wants to say to you. Go to Hebrews five eight. <laughs> there's, look, there's nothing sweeter than doing this, is there? I mean, I know you're probably tired and the concentration meter's like petered out to nothing by now. I get it. I do. But there's nothing sweeter than doing what you're doing right now. Honestly, there's nothing sweeter. There's no, you know, go under the Christmas tree, but, oh, but I got my new bicycle. I got my new whatever under the tree. No, not, that doesn't compare. Whatever you think you're missing right now, nothing compares. Amen? Amen. Hebrews 5.8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience. Lo and behold, our Lord Jesus Christ learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So obedience isn't just reserved for us. It's something that our Lord, our Savior, learned himself. Even Jesus was sanctified through obedience. Think about that. Up here on the board, last principle, he learned obedience. Jesus was sanctified the same way every human is to the will and for the glory of God. Jesus brought glory to his Father in ways that none of us will. But he certainly, in his own life, learned, grew in wisdom and knowledge, was sanctified, was set apart for God's good purpose. I mean, as we said on Christmas morning, he was born to die. But God did something with him for 33 years before he died. We might say that rightly. He was sanctified. He was set apart for God's purposes. And who brought more glory to God than Jesus? 
So Jesus was sanctified the same way every human is, to the will and for the glory of God. Obedience is something that God teaches us. He also tests it to confirm it. True obedience implies faith, which must be tested for its consummation. Jesus was sanctified the same way every human is, to the will and for the glory of God. Obedience is something that God teaches us. He also tests it to confirm it. True obedience implies faith, which must be tested for its consummation. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Father, thank you again for this morning's message, for a wonderful time to fellowship in your Son's good name. For there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Thank you for making this the precious gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, something for each of us to cling to, not just at salvation, but forevermore. Thank you for making this day a special day ordained from eternity past to refresh our weary souls. We pray that we see such lessons as what they truly are, heavenly gifts from you, Father. We pray that those not with us this morning, and even those who ought to be, but are for some personal reasons not, we pray for all that the contents of this message reach beyond these four walls. May you bless all traveling from this local assembly. It's in Christ's precious name, by the power of the Spirit, that we pray. Amen. Thank you.